So we are again in Colossians chapter 3 tonight. Uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 9. We only got through the first eight verses last time we met. So uh, hopefully, Lord willing, we'll get through the entire chapter. We'll see. So in, uh, we're going to start out with just reading verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3 of Colossians. And uh, what we're going to notice at the end of this chapter is that uh, Colossians, in the last half of this third chapter, it will remind us a lot of another letter that Paul wrote. It will remind us quite a bit of certain sections of Ephesians, and we're going to kind of be going back and forth at times between Colossians and Ephesians. But in verses 9 and 10 it says, Lie not to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man, implying that lying is part of the old man. Lying is a part of who you used to be. So lie not to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. How have you put off the old man? You've killed him. You've crucified him. You've put him in the ground. That's what we do with the old man, the old self. We crucify it. Galatians 2.20, for I am crucified with Christ. It is not, uh, no longer I that live, but Christ liveth within me. Lie not to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. The old man just wants to do, it's a dirty old man, always wanting to do bad, dirty deeds, right? Like ACDC, dirty deeds done dirt cheap, right? <laughs> so put off the old man with his deeds. Verse 10, and having put on the new man, so it's almost like the new and the old self is like a garment that you slip on and slip off. You know, you want to put off the old man like it's some dirty, ratty, old prodigal son clothing that's been in the pig pen. You just want to toss it and throw it away. You want to put on the new man. You want to put on the new garment, just like the father put on the new robe of the prodigal son when he returned. So it says, and put on the new man. The new man is the man that's been born again, the man of the new birth, the man that has been born from above, the man that has not just been born of water, but of spirit, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. And having put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge. So this new man gets his nourishment, his renewal through the knowledge after the image of him who created him. So the more intimate we are with God through Christ Jesus, the more we are going to be renewed in this new man state, this new born again state that we're living in. Uh, so this is, the, it, it, this is what the death and the resurrection and being born again is all about. That's kind of what verses 9 and 10 are, is about the death and the resurrection and what being born again is all about. Um, it's, it's kind of like Yeshua when he died and was resurrected. Now, before he died, only Judah could have been brought back to God. Because in uh, the prophets, it was Israel, the ten tribes that were divorced from God. God said that he has given Israel a bill of divorcement. He's given um, Israel the bill of divorcement, sent Israel on their way. So we have a problem here because in the Torah, the law says that once a man divorces a woman and she goes off and starts being with somebody else, even if he wants her back, he can't take her back. She's been defiled. So now we have a problem. Does that mean the ten tribes are just, oh, okay, well, goodbye? No, because when Jesus died, he resurrected and he resurrected as a new man. So being a new man, that old contract, that old divorce contract, that old marital contract he had with Israel was gone. It was no more. It was null and void through his death. And when he rose again, he rose as a new man and had the power and the ability to take Israel back. So not only Judah was able to come back, but Israel, the ten tribes were able to come back. Not only was Israel able to come back, but we as Gentile people were able to come back being grafted in. So this is kind of what verses uh, 9 and 10 kind of summarize. And it also reminds me of what uh, the Apostle said in Romans 12, 1 and 2, which is uh, a passage that uh, most of you probably know pretty well. So I'll just, you don't have to turn there with me, but I'm just going to turn there real quick and quote Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2. Because it's talking about death and resurrection in the sense of a sacrifice. And remember, Isaac was that living sacrifice. He was as good as dead. His father was going to go through and turn him to a pile of ash, but he was saved because of the ram caught in the thicket. So he was good as dead. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, meaning I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. A living sacrifice burns off blood, sweat, and tears. 
When we labor for God, we labor for the king, we labor with all our being, we are expending calories which burn fat. We are expending the salt content in our sweat, and, and all sacrifices are salted. And then, you know, our, our blood, we, we kind of expend our blood as well when we live for him. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. That meaning is, do not let the world press you into its mold. I used to like with uh, like to play with Play-Doh when I was a little kid, and they had these Play-Doh sets, and sometimes they had these molds that you could just put a lump of Play-Doh in and squeeze it. Boom, it pops out just like the mold. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be you transformed, not just molded, transformed, changed into something else. Be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Moving on to verse 11 of Colossians 3. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but all is but Christ is in all and in all. So what we're saying here is we're not saying that nationality isn't important because our ethnicity and nationality is important because he made a contract with Israel, which is an ethnicity which is a people group. So it's not saying that, oh, we don't have to worry about you know people groups anymore. He's basically talking about our spirit. Our spirit has no gender. Our spirit has no nationality. Our spirit is not, you know, has no loyalties but to God. So our spirit has no nationality or gender, but, but our spirit has one source and our one source is in God. We came from God because God breathed his own life into us and we became a living soul. Now, genetically, Every one of us are either from one of three people. Every one of us are either from Shem, which he's all the Jews and the Arabs, or Ham, which is all the African people, or Japheth, which is all the Caucasian people, you know, the Asian and, you know, the, and, and, and the white people. And then all the other people groups kind of got mingled in with, you know, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and all their descendants mingling with each other. And then other, you know, people groups came out of that. But genetically, we come from one of three Noah's, uh, uh, three Noah's sons, but spiritually, we all come from the same source. That's God. So that's what Paul's trying to drive home here. So in, in this new man, in this new birth, in this renewal, in this new creation that we are, there is neither Greek nor Jew nor circumcision nor uncircumcision nor barbarian nor Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And moving on to verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God. Okay, what does it mean to be elect? Chosen. Because when we cast a ballot, we elect a leader. Not saying that's done honestly anymore, but that's beside the point. Um, if you're a, so basically, a lot of people, the, the Calvinists will, would want to go to this and say, oh, this is predestination. So when God, you know, created every human soul, he decided which ones are going to go to heaven and which ones are going to go to hell, and there's no change in it. I think that's a bunch of load of BS. Because what this elect means, first of all, the elect is talking about the chosen people of Israel. First and foremost, that's the first meaning. He's talking about the elect, how Israel was chosen to be God's special set-apart people. Secondly, to be elect, you have to be a human being. And every one of us sitting here are human beings. The only people that are not elect are people of Genesis 6-4, which are the Nephilim, which are the human angelic hybrids. They are, they're not destined for heaven because they were never meant to be. They're outside of God's created order and God's intentions because the angels rebelled and produced these creatures through their interactions with human women. So when they die, their spirits become demons. And ultimately, they're going to end up in the lake of fire at the end of time in judgment. So if you want to talk about predestination, only the Nephilim are predestined for hell. All human beings are predestined for heaven, but we have that free will choice right to choose whether that's where we want to go or not. God's not going to twist or manipulate anybody and force us to love him, force us to serve him, force us to accept Yeshua, force us to go to heaven. If we don't want to go there, he won't let us go there. So God doesn't send anybody to hell. People send themselves to hell because of their free choice. I know Calvinists would disagree with all of that, but I'm not a Calvinist. <laughs> I don't read that in the scriptures. So that's the, the first part of that verse. I wanted to clarify who the chosen are. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, 
Because Colossians, he's talking to a mixed congregation. He's talking to Jews, but he's talking to the Gentiles who are a part of this Colossi congregation, this congregation of people. So he's addressing both Jews and Gentiles here. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, which bowels of mercy just means compassion. What version are you using again? King James Easy Reader. Bowels of compassion, which is just another way of saying, uh, bowels of mercy, which is just another way of saying compassion. Because in different cultures, you, the seat of your emotion is di in different parts of the body. We always talk about how our heart is the seat of our emotion, right? In other countries, the seat of their emotion is their throat. So in other countries, people don't ask Jesus to come into their heart. They ask Jesus to come into their throat. And even in certain parts of the world, they don't ask Jesus to come into their heart. They ask Jesus to come into their bowels. Because their bowels is considered the seat of their emotion. And you can still see this as the King James translated, bowels of mercies. The mercies. It's not wrong. No, it's not wrong. I mean, the, it's, the seat of emotion depends on where the culture you're in. So like a, a Bible translator, you know, would, would it, like uh, bowels of mercy, maybe they would translate that as throat of mercy, depending on what people group they're dealing with, right? Or what have you. So beloved bowels of mercy, kindness humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. Okay, so we're going to continue on. Let me just read verse 12 again. So put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, these are the things you should put on, compassion, bowels of mercy, put on kindness, put on humbleness of mind, uh, meaning you don't think you're a big shot. You put others before you. Meekness, long-suffering, which is another word for patience, Verse 13, forbearing one another, in other words, putting up with each other's little weird idiosyncrasies that we have. I'm sure if we spend enough time with each other, we would find something that got on each other's nerves. And that's just, that's just natural. That's just who we are. But we need to forbear one another. We need to put up with that and not let that get under into our crawl. Forbear one another and forgiving one another. Because we're going to do things, and I'm sure that none of us would do anything to hurt anyone here on purpose. But we're going to offend somebody at some point, whether intentionally or unintentionally. I would say probably 95 or greater percent of the time it's going to be unintentional. Yeah, but I when we I do, do huh? I hope I didn't do that. No, 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 no. No, I just, I didn't want to mess you up. So forgiving one another, and it says, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. So, you know, we know that Christ has forgiven us. So if Christ has forgiven us, then there's no reason why we can't forgive somebody else. That would be wrong. That'd be wrong. We can't hold it. I mean, my goodness, from the cross, the people, the very people that were crucifying him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So if the, if the Father forgave people that weren't even repentant, we should forgive others when they do something against us. Verse 14, and above all these things, above all, put on charity, which is love. Put on love. Why? Because 1 John says God is love. Now, remember, even though it says God is love, it doesn't mean it's just this sicky, sweet, tiptoe through the tulips, everything's fine. There's something called tough love. And it's just as valid a form of love as the ooey-gooey love. So sometimes love is going to be disciplinary. Sometimes love is going to come in forth in, in, in a mode of judgment. So we've got to keep that in mind, too. Uh, yeah, there's many faces of love. Well, like in English, we only have one word for love, and we use it for everything. There's five in the Bible, isn't there? Well, it depends on which language. Right. Like, for instance, I love Pam, my wife, and I love pizza. But when I say that, you know I love each one differently. I love Pam in a totally different way than I love pizza, but we only have one word for it. Now, in the Greek, I can say I love Pam, um, you know, I agape Pam, which means I love her with a godlike love because that's what is commanded. And then I can say, I can also say, I eros, Pam. I love her with a sexual love. And I can, and I can look at Wade and say, I phileo you because I love you with a brotherly love. Phileo, Philadelphia. So there's different words for love. So it says, um, above all, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Wow. The bond of perfectness, meaning wholeness, completeness. So if you want to be perfect, you want to be complete, be loving. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. So that, you know, when God sits on, on the throne of your heart, you know, his shalom should, should be the, the, the thing that he rules by. 
Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which you also are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Well, guess what? When Paul wrote this, the Gospels weren't written. When Paul wrote this, there was no New Testament. So what does he mean by, by the, the words of Christ dwell in you richly? What did Christ preach from? The Old, he, the Old Testament. Christ preached from the five books of Moses, from the Psalms, from the prophets. So basically what Paul is saying here is that the words of the Old Testament, specifically and more importantly, the words of Torah, the words of the law, are the words of Christ. They're one and the same. Because he didn't really say anything new when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote out his sermons. He was just referring back and clarifying and bringing greater emphasis and clarity on what was already written. He brought it to a new, deeper level. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you also are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing. So uh, um, admonishing is like uh, urging, encouraging. Admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, meaning if you, if you walk and chew bubble gum, if you paint, if you play the guitar, if you play a, a um, pool, Whatever you do, if you eat, if you sleep, and I will dare say if you go to the bathroom, whatever you do, nothing's outside the realm of, of being under the jurisdiction and instruction of God. I mean, we Jews, when we go to the bathroom, we have a blessing for that. You've heard, oh, there's an app for that. Well, there's a blessing for everything. Lord, I thank you that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. For if any one of my orifices were blocked I would not be able to stand before you even for one hour. So blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who creates me wonderfully. I call it the potty prayer. So whenever we use the bathroom and the paperwork's done and everything came out all right, we say that blessing. So whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So it says, whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father by him. So we're going to kind of stop there and, and dig into what we just read. So verses 12 through 17, this is basically the Colossians version or way of saying the fruit of the Spirit. Um, so we know what the fruit of the Spirit is, right? In Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and it sounds a lot like we, what we just read in uh, Colossians chapter 3. So in uh, Galatians 5, let me try to find it here. Oh, here we go. So in Galatians chapter 5, starting with verse 22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, which is patience, gentleness, goodness, and faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. So what we just read in Colossians is just kind of like a drawn-out version of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, this fruit of the Spirit that we just read in Colossians kind of counteract verses 8 and 9 of Colossians 3, where it says, Put off these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, or you can say slander, filthy communication out of your mouth. So what we just read there from verses 12 through 17 counteract verses, um, verse 8, verse 8 and 9. All right. So let's read verses 13 and 14 again. Forbearing one another, forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. So this kind of harkens back to the gospel in Matthew 18, the Matthew 18 protocol, that if uh, you're, you got a beef with somebody or somebody has a beef with you, you go to them privately, try to work it out. That doesn't work, bring two other people that are unbiased, and let them be witnesses and try to work it out. If you can't work it out through those means, then you take it before a ruling body of your religious community and settle it then. And whatever they decide, you have to abide by and live by. But also what this is uh, reminding me of is another one of the Apostle Paul's letters, which is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, what is 1 Corinthians chapter 13? 
the love chapter. There we go. Love, exciting and new. Come aboard. We're expecting you. The love boat. Yeah, you can tell how old I am, can't you? So, uh, verses 13 and 14 remind me of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is worth reading. And um, so it says, uh, Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, and have not love, or charity, I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. I just make a bunch of noise. Don't mean anything. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, I, I'm the total package spiritually. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. All those gifts mean nothing without love. You can prophesy all day. You can move mountains all day. You can believe and have faith all day. It doesn't mean, mean anything if love is not the motivating factor for those gifts. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Oh, look how selfless I am. I'm giving up everything. I'm going to take a vow of poverty. Though I bestow all my goods to the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, I'm willing to even be a martyr. And have not love, it profits me nothing. It's just wasted action, wasted motion. It means nothing. Verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. Love envies not. Love vaunteth not itself. In other words, it doesn't brag. It is not puffed up. Love is not arrogant. So whenever you see like these prideful Christians walking around puffing out their chest, thinking they're all that in a bag of chips, they're not operating in love. They're operating in pride. Love does not behave itself unseemingly. It does not seek her own. Love has no clicks. Now, we always have our favorite people that we hang out with, and that's fine. But we should be able to get along and be civil with everybody. Does not behave itself unseemingly, seeks not her own. It is not easily provoked. Not easily provoked. In other words, very patient. You know, somebody can say things and be inconsiderate. No big deal. Let's let it roll. Off yeah, just let it roll off you like water off a duck's back. Is not easily provoked and thinks no evil. So if you're in the spirit, if you're in the spirit of godly love, you're not going to jump to the wrong conclusion right off the bat. Oh, somebody hates me. Oh, somebody doesn't like me. Oh, they're talking about being behind my back. Oh, that no, you're not going to go there. It thinks no evil. Remember the importance of giving the benefit of the doubt. Verse six: It rejoices not in iniquity. Iniquity means lawlessness. It rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. We know the truth is the word of God. We know the truth is Jesus Christ. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But where there be prophecy, they shall fail. Whether they be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Okay, I'm just going to stop right there because it just kind of goes on off the topic of love. But verse 13 says, And now abides faith, hope, and charity, or faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is, is love. So it's kind of like, uh, I, I guess, the, the holy trinity of attributes, faith, hope, and love, right? Uh, so that's what First Corinthians, or, uh, Colossians 3, 13 and 14 remind me of. Now, we also uh, want to bring out in Colossians 3, 13, where it says, Forbearing one another, forgiving one another, if any man have any quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. And I already mentioned this before, but what Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do, right? And I also want to reference uh, another of Paul's letters in Philippians. And maybe one day we'll go through Philippians. That's the book of joy. It's the joy book. So Philippians 2.3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. That's hard to do sometimes. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. We should put others before ourselves. There's the English word joy, and there's an acronym, J-O-Y. That's how you get true joy. You put Jesus first, then others next, and yourself last. If you put others before you and you put Christ above all, you're going to end up having true joy. So that's verse, uh, verse 13. Verse 14. And above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. So love is a choice, like choosing a shirt to wear. We can choose to put on love or not. We can love and act in a loving way, even if we don't totally feel it. 
because our feelings aren't important when it comes to love. Love is action. Love is not feelings. Feelings change. Feelings are undependable. You know, I love Pam. But sometimes we get in arguments and some days I'm just upset with her. Doesn't mean I've stopped loving her. I, I know one time Ariana is a sassy little teenager, 13 years old. One, one time I said, you know what, Ariana? I love you and I always love you, but right now I don't like you very much. Right? So love doesn't depend on our feelings. I didn't feel any love for her. I knew I loved her, but I didn't feel that love. So feelings are, aren't a part of this equation here. So above all, the, <clears throat> above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of, of perfectness. There's so much in that, that whole chapter. That whole, so. The love chapter? Yeah, it's just there's so much there. Yeah. You can spend a long time picking that apart. Oh, yeah. That's, that's a whole series in and of itself. Big time. Verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you also are called in one body. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go there, but Paul also addresses what it means to be one body, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which precedes the love chapter. So he's talking about how we need to be one as one body in order to truly love each other. So basically, to sum up chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, it's like, okay, we all are part of the body of Christ. Christ is the head. But we're all part of his body, so we all play different roles. I can't do what Wade does. Wade can't do what I do. Right? And I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm a pinky toe. And maybe, maybe Wade's a hand. And I can't get jealous of Wade because he's a hand and I'm a pinky toe. My pinky, the pinky toe is just as important as the hand. Right? So each body part is important. We all have to learn how to work together in unison as a well-oiled machine because if one of us were, were not working right or we're out of sync or we're cut off, we, we, wouldn't, we would be crippled. We wouldn't work right. We wouldn't be able to be the body of Christ like we should be. So that just kind of rem verse 15 remind me of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. American Army, they're all trained in certain things. Yeah. If one, see the tank driver gets taken out, they're done. Yeah. Now Canadians cross-trained. Yeah. So uh, I don't know why that just reminded me of that, but well, it did. Well, that's a good illustration. Um, all right. So also you're called in one body and be ye thankful. Thankful. Gratitude and grief cannot exist simultaneously. Gratitude is, is a very powerful emotion. It's a very powerful attribute. When, you're, when you have a heart of gratitude, it doesn't matter how crappy your life is. doesn't matter how crappy things are going. doesn't matter if the world's falling apart around you. If you can find something to be grateful for, you can power through that. You know, I, I mean, my dad, bless his heart, he always said, he, I don't know where he heard it, but he'd always quote this. He said, I felt sorry for myself because I never had a pair of shoes until, until I saw a man who had no feet. So we, we got to have the attitude of gratitude. And again, just like love, gratitude is a choice. It's a choice. All right, verse 16. Let the word of Christ, which I already told you is basically the words of Torah, the words of the prophets in the Old Testament. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, a lot of people, you know, look at the five books of Moses as a bad thing because it's law and they think the law is bad. Well, no, the law is good because Paul said in Romans it's holy and the law shows us what's right and wrong. It shows us the way to live. Now, David had such a love affair with the five books of Moses. When he became king, the law itself told him he had to make a copy of the five books of Moses for himself. So one of the first things he did when he sat on the throne was sit down and, and with the Levites help wrote the five books of Moses because they didn't have Barnes and Noble or, or chapters or Amazon. He, they, they didn't have photocopy machines or he couldn't order the book. He had to write it out for himself if he was going to have a copy because he had to rule Israel by those five books. And David fell in love with it so much. You want to know how, how much David loved the Torah, how much David loved the law of God? Read Psalm. Take time to read Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the entire Bible, and all he talks about is how great God's law is. He uses every adjective and description you can imagine to say how awesome and great God's law is. And we here in the modern day want to poo-poo on it because we think it's a bad thing. 
No, actually the law is freedom. It's not a bondage. Why would you think that the law is a bondage? Why would God deliver the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt just to put them under the bondage of the law in the wilderness? That would make God a sadist. The law was because he loved them. He didn't want them to get sick. He didn't want to get them to get hurt. He wanted them to live the best lives they possibly could. And so he gave them the law to show them the right way to live. Okay, I beat that horse enough. All right, um, now let's see. There's a second part of this verse where it says to speak to one another, admonish one another, and speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. He virtually says the exact same thing in Ephesians 5.19. Yeah, listen to Shane and Shane. Uh, I don't think so. We they put all different songs to songs. Oh, awesome. Oh, yeah, they're real good. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out. So Ephesians 5.19 says basically the same thing. It says, speak to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. So in Ephesians, it's saying to do it to yourself, and in Colossians, it's saying do it to other people. All right? Pass it on. Verse 17, and whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Yeshua, giving thanks to the Father by him. So this should always be our motive. Uh, all right, verse 18. Okay, now we're getting into the part where people start getting offended because they think it's sexist. They think it's outdated. But hear me out here. So it says in verse 18, wives, Submit yourselves to your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Now, 1 Corinthians, I'll turn there really quick. Let me, okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 17, verse 4, Paul addresses this. 1 Corinthians 17, verse 4. Nope, I wrote that wrong. There is no 17.4. That's my dyscalculia happening again. Maybe it's 16, 16.4. Well, I don't know. I, I, I messed up that uh, citation. Sorry about that. That happens sometimes. But what I want to say about this where it says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as it fits the Lord. The world and the feminist out there would have you believe that is patriarchal oppression. That is bondage. And, 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 and you get the connotation where the guy's throwing his weight around. Like, oh, ho, ho, ho. I'm the leader and God put me in charge, so you have to do what I say. Submit. <laughs> That's not what it is. Because God told the husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Your husband should want to throw himself in front of a bus for you if he had to. And if your husband loved you the way the Bible says, you wouldn't have a problem submitting to your husband. And when I discovered, when I was first married, when I created a safe, loving environment for Pam, it was much, much easier for her to submit to me. Now, why does God want the woman to submit to the man? Because if something goes wrong, the man gets punished, not the woman. The burden of responsibility falls on the man. If I make a boneheaded decision for my family, Pam's not going to get in trouble for it. I am. So why would the wife want to be in charge? Because she would be subjected to punishment if she goes the wrong way. That's a very loving thing. It's like the husband is a shield for the wife to protect her in this world, but to protect her spiritually as well, so she don't get the brunt of God's wrath. So again, the husband's supposed to love the wife in a sacrificial way, and if he does, it's going to create an environment where the woman's not going to have a problem submitting. Because it's not about throwing around your power and authority. It's about love. It's about rightness and properness. So hopefully, you know, we can kind of get past what the world is trying to pervert uh, the scriptures. All right. So, um, okay, that was verse 18. And now he addresses the husbands in verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Love your wives and be not bitter against them. 
Uh, okay. Now, in 1 Peter 3.7, I quote this all the time to guys. Men, do you want your prayers answered? If you want your prayers answered, Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. If you are hurting your wife, offending your wife, and you're, you're treating her like, you know, a, a galley slave, God is going to ignore you when you speak to him. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way. In other words, understand what makes them tick. Understand what gets them upset, what makes them happy, happy wife, happy life. Understand them. Because when you understand them, then you're going to love them in the correct way. And when you understand them and love them in the correct way, then they're going to be submitted to you in godliness. So it's, um, love your wives um, uh, or live with them in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. So there it says, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. And so verse, um, let's see. Verse 18 and 19 is also reiterated in Ephesians because Ephesians 5, he talks about family unity and the properness of family and, and the rule of family. So in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33, it's kind of like going into greater detail what we just read in Colossians 3, 18 and 19. So in um, Ephesians 5, starting with verse 21, Uh, 21. Okay, here we go. Submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. So not only do wives have to submit, husbands at times have to submit to their wives. In other words, you have to submit to each other. In other words, you have to walk in agreement. Amos says, how can two walk if they, if they not agree? And I th there's another prophet that said that a three-string cord is not easily broken. So if the husband and wife wrap and revolve themselves around God, they would be like a three-braided cord that's not easily broken. That's unevenly yoked as well. As another... Unequally yoked, you can apply that to marriage, but if you want to be scripturally correct, it's talking about not being unequally yoked in business practices. But it is applicable to marriage. It is applicable to marriage. But in the context of what was written, don't go into business with somebody who's shady. Is that what, it's, that's what it really means. means? That's what it actually okay, means. I've used it for so many well, you can you can use it. it. It's like I said, it is equally applicable to marriage. But the yeah, don't be don't be unequally yoked with one another. So Ephesians five, um, chapter or verse twenty one says, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subjected to Christ, so let the wives be um, to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So that's that sacrificial love a husband's supposed to have. Okay, um, moving on. Then it says um, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water of the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but as it should be holy without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. I don't let myself starve. I don't let myself get stinky. I take care of myself because I want to be well. I want to be presentable. So I need to love my wife as my own body. Because men can be pretty selfish. And if we're selfish, we need to turn that selfishness outward and, and focus it on our wives. Love our wives like we love ourselves. He that loves his wife loves himself. Why? How is it that if he loves his wife, he loves himself? Because you're one. You get mutual respect for one another. But in Genesis, it says the, the man shall leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So if you love your wife, you're loving yourself. And that's that. Let me say this too: If you do not love yourself as a human being, I'm especially talking to a guy here. If you don't love yourself, you have no business getting married, none whatsoever. If you can't love yourself, you're not going to love your wife correctly. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, so it also says, "Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, gave himself for." Okay, I read that. Um, yeah, verse 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. 
For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourished it, cherished it, and even as and even as the Lord the church. For we are all members of his body, his flesh and his bones. And for this cause shall a man leave. So he's quoting Genesis, what I just quoted. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, this one flesh thing, it's not just talking about physical sexual union. It's talking about a mingling of souls. This is a little off topic, but I think it's appropriate. So whenever you have multiple sex partners, you create a soul tie with that individual. And before you get married and, and have your one and final love of your life, you need to break those soul ties with everybody you've been intimate with. I know, knew a guy uh, in prison, and uh, guys get lonely in prison, and we know what happens. There's some homosexuality that goes on, and the guy says, look, I'm not gay. I'm not homosexual, but I had this one time fling with this one guy, and it's, I'm not gay, but I can't stop thinking about him. What's wrong with me? Why can't I overcome it? I said, because you have a soul tie. You become one flesh, you mingled spirits, and you need to break that soul tie. And I guarantee you, if you break that soul tie, you won't think about that guy anymore. How do you break soul tie? Punch him in the face. And break a soul tie. You, you just acknowledge the sin of fornication, of sexual sin. And you say, Lord, you know, please forgive me. And in the, by the name, power, blood, and authority of Jesus Christ, I break that soul tie with that individual. It's simple as that. Because the power of the name, it's the, it's the power of the blood and power of the name. Okay, back, back to... Uh, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife uh, see that she reverence her husband. So, um, behind every great man is a great woman. God created women to be, you know, the helpmate. I mean, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my wife. I wouldn't be ministering in the capacity that I am if it wasn't for my wife. I feel sorry for ministers who are who are single, you know, unless God called them to celibacy. And that's where the Catholic Church went wrong. Why won't they let their priests marry? Their wives are a strength. And it's because they didn't let their uh, priests marry is why all this sexual shenanigans has come up in the Catholic Church specifically. Now, Orthodox Christianity, they, they have a similar... Uh, um, order of things as the Catholic Church, but they let their priests marry. So that's that's one thing that, you know, and, and even here, I talk to a lot of Catholics here, and it seems like the further away you get from the Vatican, the more they don't yeah, agree with the Vatican. Yeah, because I've heard so many Catholics say, I don't understand why our priests can't marry. They should marry. They need to be married. Some of the Catholic churches actually become charismatic. Yeah, I've... I've which is, blows my mind. Yeah, I've, I've heard of some charismatic Catholic churches. Yeah. Um, so I think that was a big mistake on their part because it... it the priest can't be as effective unless he has a wife to help him. Like in Judaism, there's a rabbi, right? The wife is called the Rebetzin, which means she's like basically a female rabbi, even though she's not leading the congregation. She ministers to the women. Yeah. Men have no business ministering to women in the church unless their wife is with them. They have no business because things can happen. Or groups and stuff. Like exactly. That, right? So you've got to have Senior. both both Senior there. With children than most men. Yeah. Yeah. That, so you, you've got to have both for it to, to function well. All right, off that hobby horse. Uh, okay, verses, all right, Red Ari, back to Colossians. I better not get sick. I am sick. I better not get we sick. We rebuke that. You're not sick. You're going to be healed in Jesus' name. <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't speak that into existence. We, we rebuke that, right? Okay. Um, now, it goes on in verse 20 to children. So it says, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And this goes back to Ephesians uh, 6, 1 and 3. See, Paul, it's like he glazes over this in Colossians, but he goes in great detail in Ephesians. So what he says in Colossians, he kind of fleshes out a little bit more in regards to the family in Ephesians, because it's Ephesians 6, 1 through 3 says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. Now, verse 21 of uh, Colossians 3. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. <coughs> I know sometimes children can be very frustrating. Seems like they can't listen. See, you know, and, and though they try, they, they mess things up sometimes. But if you're always negative and always criticizing your child, your child will become bitter. 
and your child will say, why do I even bother? Why even try to obey? Because I can never do anything right. I can never please my parents. And that's what this is saying here. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger lest they be dis uh, discouraged. And uh, that kind of goes with Ephesians 6.4. See, we're always turning back to one of Paul's letters because they all say a lot of the same things. And some places they go into detail more than others. So Ephesians 6.4 says virtually the same thing. And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Don't poke them until they get mad at you and blow up, and then you punish them? How can you punish them? And because you made them mad. Where's, that, where's the right in that? You push them. You know, if you, po if you, if you mess with a dog, he's going to end up biting you. And it's the same with children. And if a children becomes disrespectful because you made them mad, that's your fault. It's not the child's fault in that instance. Yeah. Cat's in the cradle, right? And, your, and you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurturing and admonition of the Lord. Uh, okay, verse Colossians 3, 21. Hey, I think we're going to make it. 22. Servants, obey in all things your master according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Okay, so, you know, we in the Western world aren't into slave trade anymore, so this can apply to an employer-employee relationship. So when you're working for an employer, yeah, that person's your boss, but ultimately Jesus is your boss. Work for your, your, for your boss as if your boss was Jesus because he is. What, what would you, you may not do certain things for your boss because you may not like him, but you love Jesus, you'd do anything for him. So do for your employer as you would do for Jesus, because that's the greatest witness in the workplace that you could ever have. More so than witnessing to your coworkers or passing out tracts or handing out Bibles is to, you know, be a good employee. And even though you may not like your boss, if you obey your boss and do what he says, that's going to be a great witness right there. Uh, and verse 23, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. A lot of times people will will do good when the boss is on the floor walking the catwalk and watching what's going on on the floor, right? But as soon as he leaves, they kick back and kick their heels and take a take a break or a smoke break. But no, no, no. Even when they're not looking, you ought to do the very best you can. Because now the boss doesn't even have to be on the floor. He can still see you. Cameras. Exactly. So be consistent when he's watching, when he's not watching, because even when he's not watching, and even if there's no cameras, other employees are going to rat you out. He's a lazy person. You know what I mean? Yeah, he acts like he's working hard when you're on the floor, but as soon as you go back to your office, he just slacks off. Lazy and that's a bad witness. Unions. Huh? Lazy people love unions. Oh, yeah. I hate unions. Oh, yeah, because they're just always whine, moan, and bellyache over the stupidest things. Most of them, not all of them, but the majority of them. So, yeah. If you're a good worker, you don't need a union in a lot of cases. So, knowing that the Lord, uh, knowing, that, knowing that of the Lord, you shall receive the reward of the inheritance for you, serve the Lord Christ. But he that does wrong shall receive the wrong which he has done, and there is no respecter of persons. So, Ephesians chapter 6 again. <coughs> Verses 5 through 9 talk about this employer-employee relationship. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as to Christ. Very, very similar words, almost verbatim. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. With good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing any man does, the same shall be received of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And you masters, you employers, do the same to them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master is also in heaven, neither is there respecter of person with him. Now, a great letter to read in connection with this employer-employee relationship is the letter of Philemon. Because Paul was in prison. Onesimus was the slave. He didn't get along with Philemon. He left, and it's implied that maybe he stole something as he left. He ended up running into Paul, of all people, and then put in prison with him. Paul was able to minister to Onesimus, bring him to the Lord. He got saved. Philemon was already saved. So Paul sends Onesimus back with a letter saying, except Philemon, he's, he's, he's a good worker now. 
you know, he he's kind of my, my baby in the Lord. I kind of brought him to the Lord. I kind of spiritually birthed him. And so treat him as you would treat me. And you guys work together because now you're not just master and slave. You're brothers. You're brothers in the Lord. So live that way. So it changed the whole dynamic of the employer-employee relationship, the slave-the-master relationship. Okay. Um, all right. Back to Colossians here. Now, I'm just going to go into a little bit of Colossians chapter 4 because it still deals with this employer-employee relationship. It says, Masters, give to your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So whatever you do, is the Lord's going to get pay, give payback some way, some shape, or form. So, you know, Paul's telling the Colossian church how family should operate, how masters and slaves, employees, employees should, rela uh, should relate to each other and how they operate and how they can do things from a biblical basis and a biblical standpoint according to the Torah and according to Messiah. So masters, give to your servants that which is just and equal knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Yay, we got through Colossians 3, and next week, Lord willing, if he doesn't give me another message, we're going to get into Colossians 4. And that's all she'll, she'll have written of Colossians 4, and then we'll move on to a new midweek study. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, close with a word of prayer, and we'll have one more hymn afterwards. Lord, there's a lot to chew on, and even though I took my time, I still feel like I kind of rushed it. We could have really slowed down and took the time with a lot of things, but time won't allow that. Maybe we can get into some of that a little bit later. But Lord, all these things are applicable to us in our daily lives. So I pray that we go back home and kind of review on our own time, Colossians chapter 3, and see where we lack, see where we can uh, do better in certain areas. Maybe, it, maybe as a wife, maybe as a husband, maybe as an employer or an employee, or maybe as you know a son or a daughter. We all have ways that we can improve and be more godly and be more Christ-like in different aspects of our lives. Because, I mean, face it, even though we're one individual, we wear many hats. I'm not only a husband, I'm a father, but I'm also a son. I'm also a cousin. I'm also a friend. I'm also a minister. I wear many different hats, and I want to please you in every aspect of my life, not just one. And I pray that you would help us to do all of that, for it's in Messiah's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right.